0: Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, Southbridge. Let me pray for us. and uh, We're going to get into Hosea chapter 2 this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you. For the opportunity to open your word this morning, God, I pray that you would uh, speak through my lips. I pray you'd anoint my lips this morning to speak your words to your people. And and you know that you've got a different group of people in this room than we're just in here an hour ago. And you may have a different message. And I pray you give me a sensitivity to hear from you as I share. And I pray for our hearts that we'd all be open to your word. That by your Spirit, you would convict and guide and direct and and renew. God, you you promise to make all things new. The old has passed away. The new things come. And there's many people here that need to experience renewal today. God, I pray that you do that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Hosea chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have your Bibles, it's right after the book of Daniel, right before Joel. Hosea chapter 2, Lord willing, we're going to be in verses 2 through 23 today in Hosea chapter 2. And as you turn there, we're going to do a little survey of our congregation this morning. How many of you in here love HGTV? DIY, like home improvement shows. Raise your hands up. Get them up high, guys. I don't see this. I got that. Yeah, I don't know. Who else? Any other guys? Yeah. Up there. All right. What are your favorite shows? You can, if you're really drowsy because of the pollen, that's fine. Uh, if you want to yell out, that's great. You want to raise your hand, whatever. How many of your favorite shows? Property Brothers. Raise your hand up. Oh, sorry, fellas. Sorry, brothers. <laughs> How many of you uh, flip-flop, flip or flop flipper flip-or-flop, however you pronounce that one? Anybody on that one? Whatever city. Oh, see, I got a couple of those, that kind of deal on that one. How about house hunters? Don't care which version, international, local, whatever, show me three houses, they're going to pick one. All right, seeing those ones. What about uh, Chip and JoJo, fixer-upper? All right. That's, uh, I think that Chip and the silos, I think, have become the new holy land, like Christians go on journeys to Waco, Texas rather than Israel. Uh, in that. So I know who not to give a hard time to you today. They're like Chick-fil-A. You don't mess with that chicken. You don't mess with Chip and Jojo. So here we go. If you know those shows, though, any of those shows, some other do-it-yourself or whatever it is, you're familiar with the concept of restoration, where you get these houses, and some of them have been neglected, they're just outdated, they've got the you know, four inch orange shag carpet, sorry if that's your house, or, you know, cat pee all over it, you can tell by the way, people walk in and they're offended by it, and wallpaper's hanging off the walls, and, so they, and then you show this house, and then the next thing you know, it's like shiplap everywhere, it's like amazing, it's been totally renovated, or, or some houses are just really old and they've been abandoned for a long time. And sometimes they'll even move them, they'll, like pick them up, and move 100-year-old houses or whatever. Some of them have been vandalized, spray-painted. The air conditioning has been stolen. They always have a pool that's got green stuff in it. It's terrible. And they need to be renovated. They need to be restored. Here's my problem with these shows. They're glorified before and after pictures. They show you what happens, how bad it, is, and they show you this. It's like, well, did they build a whole new house? Like, what happened there? They get the whole, whole new thing, and, and you don't see a lot of. The, see, my problem is not just, just, a little side note for you. Reality TV is not always reality. Just, I don't want to ruin your world. You can write that in your notes and go start watching and seeing. And here, my problem's not that like every carpenter looks like a supermodel and has the perfect five o'clock shadow and could step off of you know cutting wood to Banana Republic ads. That's not my problem. That's not the problem. <laughs> Every every, realtor is doing deals, and they're always perfect. They always look great, too. They're supermodels as well. Every deal, every flipper flop, you know, it's like stressed out. This one's going to kill us. Oh, we only made $50,000 this time. Oh, that's... Every deal makes money. It's not that you can do these things in 30 minutes. It's like, you need permits, scheduling. Like, anybody who's just thinking about what has to happen here is going, how how in the... That's not a week. That's not three weeks. In 30 minutes. And we get... That's not... That's all real, just so you know. That's the real part. My problem is that you don't really experience the process. So you got this glorified before and after picture, and you get a couple highlights through there of what happens in this deal, but you don't really experience the process. And so here's the last survey I'll ask you to do for the house shows. How many of you have watched one of those shows before and then thought, we can do that <laughs> wherever you live? Backslash, carpet, whatever it is, you know, paint a room. Let me tell you something. My wife and I have a great marriage. You want to put that to the test? Give us a can of paint. Put us in a room and say, Go. And so what always happens in these projects, you know, you run down to Lowe's and you're there and you know that you're going to have to come back three or four times. You just don't know why yet. And so then you go back to your house and you start doing the thing. And we tried this. It was about a year ago we decided we were going to paint our laundry room. We wanted the laundry room to feel like a place where people go in there and like, I want to do laundry. Like, I want to be in here. And so we did it. Here's the problem. The real problem is me. I'm really a nice guy. I genuinely am because I share these stories with you. But what happens is we, I'm a pusher. And so we painted the laundry room and it went well. And we should have stopped. Like, it should have just been done at that moment. We ended up painting basically the whole inside of our house. But what happened was we went from there to the living room. We're painting the living room. Like, we should paint the ceiling. And start painting the ceiling. If you want a really nice guy to turn into a big-time jerk, put paint in his eyes. And I didn't ask my wife for quotes. So I won't share all the details of things that got said in that because I don't want us to have to do a big conversation on the way home, honey. But I'm glad you're here. First service, there was so much more freedom. But it went bad. It went bad. Let me just tell you that, because what happened, The problem with those shows, glorified before and after picture, you miss the process. Let me tell you why we're talking about this. Last week we started Hosea series, we're talking about God's unfailing love. We saw at the, the service we talked. It gets heavy. It's dark at the beginning of that book, and then we saw that God's unfailing love. End of chapter one, verses uh, chapter one verse ten, all the way to chapter two and verse one. We saw that God's unfailing love is so powerful it can reverse a rebellious heart. And we talked about how re- repentance leads to renewal. And we had a time of repentance as a church. And some people came up here and you're repenting at the front. Some people in your seats. And God was doing work in our hearts. But here's the reality. That unfailing love is also a restoring love. Anybody here need restoration today? You don't have to raise your hand. Let me tell you something. If you don't think you do, you're a liar. You deceive yourself. Well, that's harsh words. Well, as Christians, a lot of times we like to quote 1 John 1.9. It's about forgiveness. It's about confession. It's about being cleansed. In fact, I think I talked about it last week in the message. But do you even know 1 John 1.8? 1 John 1, eight says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Amen. If we have sinned, you know what we need? We need restoration. So let me ask you, what kind of house are you like? We'll keep the analogy going, the HGTV, since so many people here like it. Are you like the house that's just been neglected for a while? It's a good house, and maybe in its heyday, it was a really great house, but it's got the carpet, and the landscaping's gotten overgrown, and it just hasn't been cared for. Maybe in your spiritual life, you haven't you haven't been paying attention, you haven't been nurturing, you haven't been doing the spiritual disciplines, you haven't been in prayer continually, you're not in your word in the Bible daily, and maybe even when you are, it's just like you're reading words from a, you're not encountering a living God, you're just reading words from a page, and, and maybe you haven't been sharing your faith, which is something that keeps us sharp in our faith. Or maybe some of you, have you seen some of those shows before, where they get in there and, they, and maybe they will talk about like, it's going to cost this much to renovate this house, but then they tear the drywall out and it's like, oh, but we've got to redo the electricity, you've got some asbestos, and we need to rewire the whole thing. And some of us are like that. On the outside, you look great, but there's stuff wasting away on the inside. You need some soul care. And some of you, it's like the house has been vandalized. You know those houses they steal the air conditioning, get all the copper out of there, where the cabinets are ripped out, and it's just like people have been in there just partying, there's stuff all over the place, a big mess. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and sin has ravaged your life. You need restoration. So let me ask you this as we go to Hosea chapter 2 today, ask yourself this one question. If there's one area of your life that God's restoring love could do a work today, what would it be? If there's one area of your life where God would work, where it needs restoration, what area would that be for you? If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 2 today. And if you weren't with us last week, just to give you an idea of what's happening here, Hosea is one of the prophets in the Old Testament. Comes right after the book of Daniel, right before the book of Joel, in the middle of these prophetic books. And what God would oftentimes do with his prophets is he would use their lives as object lessons. And so we talked about last week how Isaiah, Isaiah one time had to walk naked and barefoot for three years preaching his message. It's a tough assignment. Ezekiel one time had to lay on one side for 390 days, had to lay on the other side for 40 days. No, none of these like mattresses in a box that are super nice to lay on, none of that kind of stuff. Hard, hard assignment. But Hosea gets the hardest assignment. You read Hosea chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. And it says, Hosea, and the first word that he gets from the Lord is a prophet from God. The first time God speaks to him, he says, I want you to go marry a whore. And you're going to have children of whoredom because my people commit whoredom against me. So that's extreme language. Read verses one through three. It's a tough assignment. But chapter one, it's a lot like, I kind of use the TV analogies today, it's a lot like watching a TV show. It's like episode one, the pilot episode. You're really getting to know the characters. Who's Hosea? That's the husband. He represents God's love. Who's Gomer? That's the prostitute. By the way, it's so easy to identify with Hosea, feel compassion and sympathy and empathy towards Hosea. You're the prostitute. You're Gomer in the story. That's God's love, and the way God puts his unfailing love on display is he unites himself with unfaithful people. But then what does that produce? And what we see in chapter 1, it's a lot like, this is us. Nobody here watches that, apparently. You've got these three siblings, and you find out where they came from, and what's their story. And it's the names of those three siblings that are so significant in chapter one. The first one's Jezreel. And Jezreel's not about the defining the name, it's about the location. Because Jezreel is the place where God's people started to depart from him. They've started to, to not pay as much attention to his commandments. And and I asked you last week, where's your Jezreel? if you're not closer to Jesus today than you've ever been in your life before, then when did you start to depart? When did you start to take steps backwards? And then we saw the second child's name is No Mercy because people are rejecting God's mercy. And then the last, it gets worse. The names keep progressively getting worse. The last one is Not My People because you're not acting like my people. So we're not going to pretend like we have a relationship we don't have. But then you see that God can reverse all of that. And chapter two, what happens is it's a new episode. And now it's God speaking. And sometimes it's hard to tell whether he's speaking to Israel or whether it's Hosea speaking to Gomer. But it's God speaking to his people. It's the wife. Let's look at mom's life. And it's the children. He, he asked them to speak to, to the mom at first. Look at it in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 2. It says, plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife. And I'm not her husband. And What do you plead? That she put away her whoring from her face. And her adultery from between her breasts. Last, here's the warning, I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. Take everything away. Naked you came in, naked you left, Job tells us and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children, wait dad, it's us, we're supposed to be, mm -hmm. upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom, there's ripple effects for our sin. For their mother has played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully, And, and what is this going on for? She said, I will go after my lovers. And we saw last week that what we're talking about here is Israel's idolatry. When he's talking to Israel, he's talking about idolatry, because our idolatry is like adultery. And idolatry is not just having figurines and statues in our house that we pray to or dead saints that we pray to. Idolatry is whenever something's in the place of God. At the end of the second service, I don't think I said it in the first service, at the end of the second service last week I said, if your spouse gets a speeding ticket on the way home and then tells you when they get home, you're like, oh, I don't want to have to pay the ticket, the insurance goes, Like there's, you're not happy about it, but it's not offensive to you personally if your spouse does something that puts someone else or something else in your place in their life, that is offensive to you. And what God's is saying is that in our idolatry, that's whenever we take something, it can be good things, it can be evil things, it can be all kinds of things in our life, and we put it in the place of God in our life, that is spiritual adultery. It's idolatry. And we say, we're going to chase after our lovers, our idols, who give me and then look at, she's giving credit to the idols for what God provides, your basic needs, give me my bread and my water your protection, your security, my wool and my flax. Luxuries, my oil and my drink. Giving credit to someone other than God for God's provisions in their life, you're committing spiritual adultery. And so what verses two through five show us really is our need for restoration. We're Gomer in the story. And why do we need restoration? Because we're spiritual adulterers. And some of you maybe weren't here last week, and you think to yourself, well, that's kind of tough language for you to say. and this is Old Testament. Maybe the God in the Old Testament mean. somewhere. more, I kind of like the God of the New Testament. God. <laughs> okay, well, let's read you a verse that I read last week about the New Testament God. It's James chapter 4 and verse 4. It says, you adulterous people. What makes us adulterous people? I missed that episode where I committed adultery on God. So what is that? Friends with the world is enmity towards God. You become an enemy of God when you become friends with the world. Well, what does it mean to be a friend of the world? Read James. James tells us. A couple minutes ago, we were singing praises to Jesus. If you use the same tongue you were just singing praises to Jesus with to say evil things about people, you're a friend with the world. That is spiritual adultery. You adulterous people. What is spiritual adultery? Friendship with the world. What's friendship with the world? Friendship with the world is when if you've ever, ever treat other people with favoritism because of what they can do for you, and maybe it's because of their money, maybe it's because of their position, maybe it makes you look good to be around them in public, it'll make you give you more friends, it gives you some kind of power, some kind of influence, that is friendship with the world. You're spiritually prostituting your heart before you're whoring. The horror behind beyond your face. So the language here is so graphic. here. I couldn't even use more extreme language. Her adultery from between her breasts. That's what you're doing. If, you live, if your drive, why you get up in the morning, is your selfish ambition, read James, that's spiritual adultery. You're We're the bride of Christ. We're whoring the bride of Christ. We are the church and he's saying you you adulterous people but here in this passage this is such heavy language it seems almost condemning and it's hard but let me tell you it's not it's actually grace because did you see verse 2 it's the first time in the book of Hosea we're called to repentance it's Hosea chapter 2 and verse 2 he says you know your mother has committed whoredom she's not my wife I'm not her husband and plead with her what are you pleading with her that she put away her whoring turn from it and here's why this is grace Because Hosea, as a real person, as a real husband, had every right to have his wife killed, be done with her. Not just divorce, death. And that wasn't from some pagan, hey, you know, the Canaanites, they kill babies and so they killed their spouses. No, it's none of that kind of stuff. There's not some special historical background I'm bringing to you that you wouldn't know just by reading your Bible. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Is that anybody's life verse? Leviticus 20, 10. Anybody got that one? No, since you don't, let me tell you what it says. It says this. You can look it up on your own. It says that if a man sleeps with his neighbor's wife, that the man and the adulteress, the man and the woman, should be put to death. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22 says the same thing, different words. You're an adulterer, kill him. That's God's law. That is biblical grounds for stoning. Hosea de Gomer. The very fact that she's still alive is God's grace. And we see it in the New Testament, too. Have you seen depictions? you ever seen the movie, Nativity movie? It tells the Christmas story. It talks about Joseph, and the dilemma he's going through when he thinks that Mary's committed adultery. And he contemplates stoning her. That wasn't just vengeance. He had biblical grounds for that. Have you ever read the story in John chapter 8? If not, you can just jot this down. Maybe you're new to Christianity, new to the Bible, new to church. And the gospel of John in chapter 8, the very first story that's in John chapter 8. There's this woman that's caught in the very act of adultery, and she's brought before Jesus. But the whole point is even about the woman. These men are trying to trap Jesus. And do you know what they say to Jesus in John chapter 8? She's caught in the very act. There's no doubt about that. But then John chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, we'll put it up on the screen. They said to him, teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. There's no doubt about what's happening here. But look at the next verse. This is the key. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? You know what Jesus does next? He kneels down and he starts playing in the sand. I preach this passage and so I've read what other people say. Everybody and their cousin speculates about what Jesus wrote in the sand at that moment. The Bible doesn't say. And so it's kind of fun to like to imagine. Some people say he wrote the Ten Commandments. Some people say he wrote, thou shalt not commit adultery. This is my favorite one and the one, I'm entertained by it and so I want it to be true but I don't know if it's true As he started writing the sins of those men because I imagine the men going, okay, we're cool. Hey, I saw that. Kick the sand over there. I, I even heard one person say one time that Jesus was doodling. Like he was buying time as he thought about what, You know, like you're in school and you're just like drawing butterflies or whatever. Jesus is a doodler. Do you know Jesus was a doodler? We don't know what he wrote. Do you know what he said? He was without sin. Cast the first stone. The guys came with their stones. They were ready. And then I think the story is really telling. They left one by one. They dropped their stones. But then the passage says the oldest first. You know, I think, that, I think that the reason for that is because the oldest, they were mature enough to realize their need for restoration. And then Jesus, he doesn't just say, It's cool, we're good. Keep, keep whoring yourself out. <laughs> he, the woman, she's there, and he says, No one condemns you? I don't condemn you either. That's not an illustration. <clears throat> I don't condemn you either. But then he says, Go and sin no more. That's what Jose, yeah, take the stuff that's in the darkness, bring it in the light. It is an illustration. Bam. <laughs> you want and that's the reality. We like to keep the, the things that are dark. we like to keep them in the darkness. And God's a God of light. What he's saying here is he's saying, "This is grace. This is grace. Stop sinning. I'm going to confront you. I'm not going to kill you, though. that's grace. Instead, I'm going to send you down, and that's what the rest of this chapter is. The rest of this chapter, or verses six through 13, are these roads to restoration. It's the roads to go down that lead to restoration. And then verses 14 through 23 is the glorious destination that we end at. And so that's our outline today, really, is these three roads of restoration that lead to this glorious destination, verses 14 through 23. And I don't know about you, but have you ever taken out your your GPS before and asked it to go somewhere you already know how to get to? Ever said, and I, I love my GPS, it's so gracious, it's such a kind voice in my life. It's a woman's voice on the GPS. I think if it was like my voice, it'd be like, hey, you idiot, you just missed that turn. You know? But instead, it's like, rerouting, rerouting. You know, But have you ever hit a place you, you plan to go to, and then it tells you a different route than how you thought to get there? Let me tell you where we're headed. We're headed to repentance at the end of this sermon. The roads that God oftentimes takes us down to get there aren't always roads we would choose. And so that's what we see in verses 6 and 7, 8 through 10, and verse 11 through 13 are these three different roads. The first one, let me read it to you, in verses 6 and 7, Hosea chapter 2. Therefore, and this chapter is really structured around these three therefores, and what a therefore does when you're studying your Bible is always connects us to the context. What was just said in verse 5? She goes after her lovers. She gives the lovers credit. Therefore, here's what I'm going to do. I'm being gracious. I'm leading her restoration. She's not dead. I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she'll say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. He's going to deny her, so that she ultimately turns back to him. This road is the road of deprived desires. It's the road of deprived desires. And some of you have been down this road before. You, you want something, and you pray for something, and you, you plan for something, and you send God the memo, like, don't you know this? How my life's supposed to be going, and you haven't done it. And he keeps saying no. It's kind of it's like the, if you're going into a neighborhood and it says no outlets. Like you're going there. You're going to get stuck if you go in here. That's the road that you're going down. It's where God says no. And some of you have been praying for a child, been praying for marriage, been wanting something, been trying to get a job, been trying to have this thing happen in your ministry, been trying to do these different pieces, and and God's going, no, no, no. Now listen, every time God says no, it's not because he's denying you of an idol. But sometimes, the reason why God doesn't give us what we want is because what we want is not him. We want to use him to give us the gift, and he knows if we have the gift, we're going to idolize the gift. And it's his gracious act in our lives to not give us what we want, because what we want is not him. And so he says no. And it's a, Look at it. What happens here in this passage? What is she doing? Verse 5, the context, she's going after her idols, her other lovers. She's thinking the other lovers are going to bring satisfaction, are going to bring her needs, are going to bring her protection, are going to bring her, her comfort in her life. And he says, therefore, I'll hedge up. That hedge up right there, a participle there. It gives the idea that he keeps doing it. And so it's like this. Imagine, I don't know what your idol is, but we'll just, let's call it success today. Could be success in your job, success in marriage, success financially, success in ministry, whatever that is for you. And you go, all right, God, I'm going after success. Boom. And, you go, and he goes, no. And he blocks it. Hedges up. He's hedging up. Like here, he gives an agricultural analogy. I'm going to build thorn bushes. You're not going past this hedge. i got to try a new route. God, I'm going to pray harder. God, give me the things. Don't you see how this could be glorifying to you? You get your will. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to use some Bible verses. Here we go. Nope. Well, God's not even listening to me. I'm going to go, at my own strength, I'm going to, re- I'm going to try to get a detour. I'm going to get around this wall. Nope. Block. Nope. Block. 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 Every time you go, no, no, no. Let me tell you we're in a dangerous territory. Is when God says yes to your idol. Because you know what the Bible says that is? That's God's wrath in your life. Read Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is not a passage that was designed for you to beat up homosexuals. Read the the sins that are listed there. There are more sins than one in that passage. Yours is probably in there. Do you know what he says in that passage? He says, we worship the creation rather than the creator. We want his gifts, not the giver. We suppress the truth of God for a lie. We thought that she thinks that the things that God's providing in her life are coming from her idol. That could be your spouse. That could be your child. That could be your job. That could be your goals, your dreams, whatever. It can be good things. You think that those needs are being, all right, I'm going, to give it. I'm going to give you your idol, and you're going to find out it doesn't satisfy, and that is my wrath in your life. Read Romans chapter 1, 18 through 25. But here's what he also realizes. Read verse 7. So he's going to block, and I'm going to keep blocking. I'm going to keep blocking. Verse 7, she shall pursue her life. So she's going to go, he knows when he blocks you from your idol, you're going to go harder after your idol. The, the analogy that I thought of this week was a, a person drowning. You ever seen a person drowning? In the, maybe in a movie or in real life or maybe it's happened to you as a child and praise the Lord you, you made it through that, you're here with us. But you see somebody drowning and, they get, and artistically they'll show you like where they can see the top of the water and they're flailing around. And then somebody comes in to save them. And instead of being like, oh, so thankful and like surrendering to the Oh, save me. Thank, usually the people, they start drowning that person. They're going harder and harder after the oxygen. Do you remember what the heart of a prostitute is from last week? It's a grasper. It's a gra- we go after stuff that God hasn't given us. We try to grab a hold of it ourselves. We try to, God doesn't He doesn't know what's best for me. He didn't get the memo. I'm going to show him. And he knows that's what happens. We go harder and harder and harder. And then in the language at the end of verse 7, does it sound familiar to you, those of you who know the New Testament a little bit? And she says, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. It's the same kind of language that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 15 when he's telling the story of the prodigal son. And he goes after his idols, and he gets them. And then he ends up empty inside. Is it, what does it say? It said there, it said, she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but she'll not find them. So she's going to pursue them, and they're not going to satisfy. Them. And then she's going to look for them, and she's not even able to get them. And that's where the prodigal son ends up. And what does the prodigal son say? The prodigal son says, I'm better off being a slave at my dad's house. He your dad doesn't want you to be a slave, you're his son. He said, I'm better off being a slave at my dad's house than I am here, and he goes back. He's trying to drive her back. God deprives your desires, your idolatrous desires, because you don't want him, and he wants you until you return. Then, then you see the next one, verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. You talking to Gomer, you talking to Israel, you talking to us. Therefore oh, there's that word again, therefore what's he gonna do? I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I'll take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. God lovingly exposes our sin. God take us down the road of lovingly exposing our sin. See, God will always lovingly expose. He, he disciplines those he loves. Discipline doesn't seem pleasant in the time, but it's for fruit of righteousness. It's Hebrews chapter 12. God always lovingly. I remember a friend of mine who really taught me this. He came here and shared about eight years ago at Southbridge. He, his name is Tal Prince, and you can look him up online, his story's online. And he had a 24 year sexual addiction. I remember he shared with our whole church the day that how God exposed his sin to his wife. And for him, it was that he became overwhelmingly convicted. Now, they had been married for years. And he had been covering it up and trying to make her think that she was the one with the problem and all this stuff. And he had done all kinds of things. And he just felt overwhelmed that day. He had to tell. And then when we were talking afterwards, he was telling me, he says, God always lovingly exposes sin. Sometimes he does it through conviction. Sometimes he does it through confrontation. Like David, last week, we talked about David with Nathan. And Nathan, his pro- the prophet, what a, God, what a loving man. He'd risk his relationship. Some of us won't tell other people about the sin we see in their lives because we're afraid they're not going to like us. How much do we hate them that we won't tell them you're, you're done something that leads you to death, the Bible tells us. And Nathan says, you're the man. It's confronting his sin. God, lovingly, sometimes you get found out. Sometimes it, it gets exposed. That's all God's grace. If it happens in this life, how incredible of God to expose it here when we can still repent than on the day of judgment when that time is gone. It's lovingly exposing our sin. Why? Why? What's he doing here? Did you see? And none of, the, none of the idols are going to be able to deliver you in that moment. He's saying, none of that, all that stuff you thought was going to satisfy, that sin that was so great in that season. He says, her lovers, no one shall rescue her out of my hand. He's showing he's more powerful than them. He's showing he loves you. He's showing he cares for you when he exposes your sin. I was reading this week about a guy, his name is Matt Moore. Some of you may have read some of his blogs. He, became, he trusted Christ as a Savior back in 2010. He became a blogger in 2011. He's admitted since that his goal in life, like his driving ambition, why he got out of bed, was selfish ambition. He wanted to become a famous Christian blogger. So I'd say language, I want to reach thousands for Jesus online and all that stuff. But it was selfish ambition. It was in his heart. And if you know a story, you know in 2013 what ended up happening is he was exposed he received an email from somebody that showed his picture that was a profile picture on an app called Grinder. You know that app? How do you know that app? It's a connection website. Some will call it a hookup website for people with same-sex attraction struggles. And the email said, you're going down. Following that, the email was made public and there were articles on Christianity Today, Huffington Post, like all kinds of different places, online places that said, you know, ex-Christian blogger, on Gay Hookup Site. I was reading an article this week where he shared, and the article was called When My Public Failure Led to Repentance Restoration, if you want to look it up. He said this They will always mourn my failure. I'm not sure I would be today had it not happened. I know it was not, in some sense, God's will for me to drag His Son's name through the mud as I fell on my face in front of the world, but it was through falling on my face that He brought me to my knees. It was through being exposed and disgraced for my sin that I became sober enough to realize my desperate need for truer and deeper repentance. And In the article, he goes on to start talking about his selfish ambition and the things that were driving him and all the idols that were going on in his heart. And he says, I praise God for this because the removal of this idol reminded me that all I had and all I needed was Christ. See, God will oftentimes take us to the place where all we have is God so that we'll realize all we need is God. And so he gets you're like so angry, he's stripping away the idols. You're so angry, and he's exposing the sin. But he's doing it for your good. It's, it seems condemning, it seems harsh. It's grace and truth. I love you. Don't condemn you. Don't sin no more. And he goes on in the passage, and he says, in verse 11, our third road, that none of us would probably take, but it's a road of rejected worship. It's a road of reject, where he's not receiving your worship anymore. It's not that you're not worshiping. And that's the problem. He's not receiving your worship anymore. Verse 11 says this, And I'll put an end to all her myrrh and her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Here's what you need to know about this verse. Is that all of those things were celebrations that God had ordained. You might read them and go, well, these must have been idol festivals. There must have been pagan orgies. There must have been some horrific stuff. And God's saying, I'm not, I don't have nothing to do. i put an end to that. No, these were all God-ordained celebrations. The festivals, the feasts, those were annual celebrations. The new moons, those were monthly celebrations. The Sabbath, that was weekly celebrations. So let's put it in our context. It's like this. Your Easter and Christmas celebrations, done. I'm done with that. I don't want anything to do with that. Your monthly celebrations. Communion, we do communion about monthly. I don't want anything to do with your communion. You're gathering together here right now? No, nothing to do with that. So, what you see here, what's really scary about this verse, is this. You see how blatant some of this? You're hoarding yourself. You get between your breasts, the hoarding before your face, and she's chasing after other lovers, and she's giving credit to other lovers for providing for. And it's so obvious when we're reading the text. The Israelites apparently were doing these things and still going about these celebrations as if nothing was wrong. It's like the house that has termites or asbestos. On the outside, People think thinking, everything's good. There is a problem. It reminded me, I was talking with a friend about this yesterday, of a time in our church where there was a person that was confronted because of unfaithfulness in their marriage. And it was earlier in the week that some of those things came out. On Sunday, down in the front, getting ready to preach. This person's in the front row. They're standing there singing with their hands up. And I'm I'm like, I don't know what happened. Something must have happened between now and then. I preached the message. After the message is over with, I went to the spouse, that was the offended spouse in the situation. Said, so you guys restored this week? No, not at all. I said, What was that? I don't know. In love, called the person up. Hey, what were you doing? I was worshiping. I said, I don't know what you were doing. That wasn't worship. I said, No, 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 I felt it, was the response back to me. I said, That wasn't worship. God wasn't receiving that. You need to repent. They didn't want to repent. He said, well, That's pretty harsh words. That's this kind of church? Well, it's what Jesus says in the New Testament, by the way. Matthew chapter 15. He says, "Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. You, proph- you, you praise me with your lips, but your hearts—your hearts are the problem. Your hearts are far from me." The Pharisees, by the way, they were tithing, they were attending, they were teaching. They were doing all kinds of stuff, sending missionaries overseas and making them twice the sons of hell. Because they're convicting, converting them into an outward religion that lacked the heart. And God's saying, I don't, I don't, "I'm putting an end to that. I don't want that. I'm not receiving. It. I don't know what you felt." Your heart is far from me that's phony that's you are not my people you're not you're rejecting my mercy here's the scary part they didn't even know it it's not even so offensive that they were doing it. they didn't even know it. Most of us don't even know the hypocrisy that's in our lives and so let me ask you this who's your Nathan? Who are the people in your life like David had that care enough about you to confront sin in your life and and, and are you getting into the are you in the word and going? Psalm 139: Search me and show me if there's any offensive. You have, if you're a Christian, you've got the living God, the Holy Spirit living inside of you. But see, we oftentimes like to take the, the dark stuff and we got to keep it in the dark. God's got a light; He wants to shine His light into it. You quenching the Spirit? Are you seeking Him? Are you asking Him? Or, or you don't want anything to do? No, ten, no, like the house, neglecting, distancing. And you see what He says next? It gets harsher. Verses 12 and 13. And I'll waste her vines and her fig trees. You give credit to the idols for provision. I'll take it away. Of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I'll make them a forest. And the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast, of, of the feast days of the Baals. When she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry. And went after her lovers and forgot me. That's the sin. That's really what it is. And forgot me, declares the Lord. The other stuff's just outward manifestations. You forgot me. That doesn't mean you forgot who God is, by the way. That means you've forsaken his goodness and his authority in your life. This is really where all sin comes from. And then there it is again, verse 14. Therefore, therefore, all right, remember how these work. Context, what'd you do? You forgot me. You've been whoring yourself. Logically, what comes next? Wrath. The next verse I'm going to read to you is Scandalous. We're at the destination, by the way. You got your GPS out, taking down roads you didn't want to go down. Let me tell you something, I keep my GPS on until I get to a destination. Do you know why? Because she says at the end, "You have arrived. And it makes me feel good about me. It's like one of the few places in my life that's not in process. Like I'm here, I did it. I may-, I may have gone down some wrong roads on the way, but I'm here. We've arrived. Here's the destination. This is the glorious destination of what God's looking for. It's what he's longing for for you. And what, here's what God's longing for. You want to point? Some of your note takers. You need a point for this. God's longing for you is loving intimacy, not slavish submission. It's loving intimacy. Not, it's not saying obedience is wrong. Obedience isn't wrong. But the kind of obedience that many of us do in the church is wrong. Not slavish submission. Not you. All right, it's enough. I quit. What do you want me to do? He wants you. So look at what he says. This is why it's scandalous. You've hoarded yourself. You've forgotten me. Therefore, behold! Look! Look what I'm going to do. Look! Watch! I will allure her. That's romantic language. I'm not going to force her. I could. I'm all. So, I'm sovereign. I'm all powerful. I'm going to woo her and bring her into the wilderness. I'm going to take her away from her other lovers. I'm going to get her alone so she can only hear my advancements. I'm going to entice her and speak tenderly to her. The image here, the picture here in this passage right here, it's a husband proposing to his wife. And so you think about what happens with that. Guys, just so you know, those of you who haven't done this yet, you don't buy the ring, put it on the table and go, oh, by the way, babe, there's a ring in there. If you, if you want to do this and put it on, otherwise I'll take it back, try and get my money back. Like, that's not the way to do this, by the way, guys. <laughs> you think about how this is supposed to work. You get down on your knee, all right? If you're a Southbridge guy, you get on your knee, all right? It's like house rules, what we're going to do. You get on your knee and you say, babe. I love you, I'm going to be, I wanna pledge my life to you, I just wanna be with you, I'm gonna be faithful to you, and then whatever poetry you know, okay guys? Like if you remember something from fifth grade, I don't care, just sweet words, like the best words you got, you say them in that moment. I remember when I proposed to Shanna, got down on my knee, took her to the place, we did it, it was a, it was a progressive thing. Like I was, so we were in Discover 101, uh, Discover Southbridge last week, and I'm talking to new people in the church, her father, or her dad's there, my father-in-law, and we're talking, he says, the one thing that went bad is my daughter married this guy. And I'm like, I think he's joking. I don't know. <laughs> but I told, the, I told the group, I said, uh, I have a mentor who told me one time, if you want to make your life on this earth really good, you get one really smart person to make one really bad decision, and you're set for life. And that was my goal. I got to get this smart person to make one bad decision, and we'll be good. <laughs> and so I take I'm trying to woo her. I take her out to the first place we had our first kiss. And I know some of y'all are like, you, pastor kissed his wife before they got, yes, I did. I kissed her before we got married. So I take her out to where we had our first kiss, get down on my knee, I read some verses, said some big words, and pledged my life to her, and asked her to marry me, and gave her this ring, and then we went on a progressive date. We went from there to the first place that we met. We went from there to the first place we had a date, and we went to these significant spots throughout our dating process. And we ended at this place where her mom and dad, I'd ask dad permission, guys, you'd ask dad permission, no matter how old he is, whatever's going on with that, if he's around, ask him. Asked Dad for permission. He shows up, and Mom shows up, and my Mom and Dad show up, and we're at this place. And that place was, ironically, the first place I had planned to kiss her, but I didn't kiss her that night because I got so nervous I threw up in the bathroom. (laughs) I thought, that probably didn't smell real good on there. I bought some bubble gum out in the thing just so I didn't stink the whole, but I was was like, I knew what was going to happen. It's all over the bathroom. It was nasty, nasty, but whatever. Ironically, she knew that story by that point, so we go to this place, and spoiler, she said yes. My goal was, I'm not that bad of a guy. Like, I'm a pretty good guy. We haven't had the paint in the eye situation yet. I'm a good guy. I want to be with you. I'm I'm trying to woo her. That's what God's doing here to you. These words are to you. You're Gomer. That's terrible in chapter 1. But here we are. Look at what he's saying to you. Even in your unfaithfulness. I'm going to take you alone, away from your lovers. i want to woo you. And so what are the words that he uses to woo us? Here's God's words, verse 15. And there I, not your idols, I will give her her vineyards, provide for her. And make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And some of you read your Bible and it says the valley of Acre there, and there's a little number or a little letter there, especially if you've got an old school paper Bible like this, and you look at it, and what does it say? What does it, if you look off to the notes or the down at the bottom or off to the side, it'll say that's a valley of trouble. And if you know the Old Testament at all, if you got your history down, you know that what's being referred to here is what happened in Joshua chapter 7 with Achan. And what happened in Joshua chapter 6, gives a little context, is that God's now, find, Moses is gone, Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land, Joshua was the new leader, Joshua's going to lead his people into the promised land, and they overtake Jericho, which is huge, without real weapons, and God did it. And then they go to the next place. It's AI. It's a small place. In fact, when Joshua sends his recon team in, they come back and they say, don't send all of our dudes up there. We don't need them. We'll waste their time. Just send a few guys. And they lose. And Joshua's the leader. What what happened? What did I do wrong? Why did you abandon us? Why aren't you here, God? He's on his face before God. And God says, there's sin in the camp. He doesn't tell them right in that moment. but He tells them how to find out. But it's Achan. And what happened for Achan? He was a grasper. Heart of a prostitute unfaithfulness to God. There were things that were devoted to God, that you went and you grabbed them. You want me to bless that? And what ends up happening is, Israel finds out, they take Achan and his family out into the Valley of Acre, they stone them to death, then they burn the bodies there. Then for about half a millennium, the Valley of Acre has been a place of trouble for Israel. Israel. And so let me ask you this, what's your greatest regret in your life? What's the greatest pain you've experienced? What's the worst sin you've done? Maybe it was something that happened even in your family, not even to you. It's a part of the history, the part of the family legacy. What's your Valley of Acre? And what did he say? What are these words of wooing? And I won't make the Valley of Acre a door of hope. How is that possible? Oh, well, that's what God does, by the way. Think about Abraham, the father of our faith. First one called by God you come follow me. He's an idol worshiper. But what's his valley of acre? They haven't been able to have children. What does he say? I will make your descendants more than the stars in the sky. I will take your valley of acre, and I'll make it a door of hope. You come follow me. He's wooing, wooing. Abraham with Isaac on the altar. No, no, no. Got a ram. Dark moment, valley of acre, door of hope. Joseph, you're in prison. I'm using the prison to ultimately put you in the spot that I want you to be. Valley of Acre, Door of Hope. You want the ultimate picture? You can look at Job. You can look at Jonah. You can look at all these different people through the Bible. Look at the cross. Do you know the cross was not a piece of jewelry in the New Testament? It was a symbol of execution. And try and imagine, and we're not that far away from Easter, try and imagine what it was like a couple weeks ago. We did Good Friday. We celebrate Good Friday. What it was like to be one of the disciples experiencing and living that. And they looked at the cross, they weren't thinking about their salvation, just so you know. When darkness covered the earth, that was probably pretty cold, by the way. And the earth shook. And those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what's happening for them? They've just watched the guy they left everything for. They're banking their whole life, every dream, every aspiration, all their belief in God. It's on that guy. And it's all dying in that moment. He's just been flogged with the flogging that many people die from. We oftentimes sanitize the cross. He's been beaten beyond recognition of a human. He's beaten flesh, just meat, naked, on the cross, bleeding, dying, and then he cries out, it is finished. I think he's just dying. But then there's this phrase that when you see it in the Bible, you always better pay attention. Two words, but God. You want to talk about, we were children of wrath, but God, Ephesians chapter 2. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. The cross was an instrument of execution, but God turned into the greatest symbol of hope because it's a symbol for your salvation. Because at the cross, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. So that if you'll walk through, it's like a door of hope. What does it say here? The valley of Acre will be a door of hope. You know what Jesus says in the New Testament? I'm the door. You step through the door, you step into eternal life. But God can take, what was your valley of acre? God can take your valley of acre and turn it into a door of hope. He's wooing, he's calling. What's he looking for? Keep reading. And there there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, we're going back, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. We sang about that today. And that song, No Fear, No Longer Slave to Fear, I've walked through 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 the ocean, you split the waters, I walked right through it. He's talking about Exodus. That's the salvation moment. That's like the cross moment in the Old Testament. God delivering his people from sin, from bondage. Go back to the beginning of your salvation. I'll take you back to when you first fell in love with me, when all of it was new, is what he's saying. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Baal, if you are not familiar with the Old Testament, is a common name for a popular idol in the Old Testament. What most of us probably don't realize, though, is it's kind of a weird verse because Baal actually can also be translated husband. In fact, 15 times in other places in the Old Testament, that word is translated husband. But it'd be kind of a weird verse to read it if I read it that way, right? My husband, You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my husband. <laughs> well, I don't seem to make any sense. And that's why they've translated it, Baal. Here's why. Because the word husband there, what it's talking about is not a husband like what God's talking about and the loving intimacy that he wants with you. It's talking about a cruel master an owner, a slave driver. And that's how some of us relate to God. And God's saying, I don't want that. That's not what I want. He's not saying he doesn't want your obedience. He's saying, I don't want you just to do stuff for me. I want you. I want your heart. I want all of you. You'll call me, I'm wooing, I'm alluring. Get you alone, away from your other lovers. and tell you, I'll take your valley of acre. I'll turn into a door of hope. I want you. You'll call me my husband. So, how do you relate to them? Some of you need restoration. How? And then the rest of the passage, he shows promises of the future. In that day, the day, in that day, look at what he says For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I'll make for them a covenant on that day with the beast. How can beast make a covenant? He's restoring Eden. You're going to pet the lion. Look what he says. The beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war of the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. Security will come from God. And I will, and this is significant, betroth you to me. The reason why that's significant is this. He's talking about a new marriage. He's not just saying, I'm going I'm to patch up the problems. Some of you got marriages that need work, right? He's saying, no, we're going to start new not just fix the problems we got. I'm going to betroth you. That's the engage, That's the beginning here to me forever. And what is the bridal price of betrothal? He said, I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy. What did he do at the cross? And I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness. Not only will he be faithful to you, he'll give you the ability to be faithful. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And what was the sin? You forgot the Lord. Look what he says here. And you shall know the Lord. That's an intimate knowing adam knew his wife you shall know the lord and in that day and talk about the receptivity here and it's almost like a dance here and i will answer declares the lord and i will answer the heavens and and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer wait 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 that name from episode one But it means, now it's about the meaning of the name God sows, Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and talk about receptivity, and he shall say, you are my God. He wants loving intimacy from you. That is the destination. And if it means difficult roads, if it means depriving you of your wants, if it means not rejecting your worship, if it means exposing your sin, he'll take you down those roads. But who here needs restoration today? Who needs restoration? Some of you like the house have been neglected. Been neglecting the disciplines, been neglecting the time of the Lord. It's just not the same as it was. I'll take you back to the beginning. I'll take you back to the day of your salvation. But you gotta, what is it? Verse 2 was the command. Plead with her. Turn. Turn from her whoredom. And turn from your sin. Some of you have been vandalized by sin. Some of you, it's been like abandoned hell. You've been far from the Lord for a long time. And God needs to have hundreds of conversations with us right now. And so we're going to bow our heads, bow our hearts before him, ask him to speak. And some of us need to repent. Repent means to stop and to turn and to turn back to him, to acknowledge our sin, to see it for what it is, that's separating us from him and, and turn back to him. And some of you, some of you need to trust Christ as your savior. You don't need to get more church. You don't need to become more religious. You don't need to become clean yourself. He doesn't say to her, clean yourself up and then we can talk. He says, in your forsaking me, in your whoring yourself, in your giving credit to someone I've been providing for you and you've been giving credit to your idols, I will allure you. You come as you are to him and he will transform you. He wants a loving relationship with you. You turn to him in a relationship today. Father, we come before you. Many of us here have a relationship with you and we need restoration. Thank you that you make all things new. Thank you that you can take old things and have them pass away and have new things come. For some of us, that's in an area in our thought life and for some of us, it's a behavior and for some of us, we've been neglecting our time with you and for some of us, there's been outward, overt rebellion against you. Will you turn? Will you woo all hearts right now? If there's any here that need to trust you as Savior, I pray that now would be the moment of salvation. God, will you speak to our hearts? And the Lord needs to have conversations with many of us here, and I can't guess what those words are, and so I just want to give you some space for you to have those, that conversation with him. He's been speaking to you. Maybe he has exposed sin in your life. As you sit there, he's convicted you of sin. Deal with that sin. Maybe you didn't realize the thing you've been going so hard after is an idol, and that's why he's been telling you now, talk to him about that. Not so you can get what you want, but so you can get him, meet him in that moment. We'll give you a couple moments to do that. And one of our elders is going to come and lead us in communion in just a minute. And let me say, if you're not done, don't come and take communion. If you're not done repenting, not done being restored, stay there as long as you need to stay there. We'll do, we'll do communion again. He's not receiving false worship. So you get your heart right with the Lord.